0: Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Jillian Murphy, a naturopath, speaker, educator, and coach, and this is Food Freedom Body Love, a podcast I put together to help you make peace with food, body image, and weight, so you can kick your all-consuming, exhausting, weight-control, food-obsession habits, and start living your best, healthiest life. Before we get going on today's episode, I just wanted to pop in quickly to say thank you for tuning in. This series on health beyond weight, beyond food restriction, and beyond shame and blame is such a labor of love for me. It's something that I've wanted to do for a very long time, and I would love nothing more than for each and every one of these episodes to end up in the hands of those who are struggling with these health concerns and who would love and who need an alternative to the control options, the control prescriptions that are being offered them to them today that are, you know, possibly already not working for them or causing harm. And so I'm going to ask for three big favors. One and two, could you go to iTunes and could you rate and review this episode? And three, could you then share it, share it with five friends, who need to hear the message, share it with a favorite person who you know is struggling with perimenopause or diabetes or PCOS or whatever the concern might be, and who need someone in their corner saying, you can trust your body, you can work with your body, you can accept your body, and you can stop fighting yourself and fighting food every moment of every day. Um, And you can be well. So rate, review, share. I'm forever grateful. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the final episode of Beyond Weight and the final episode of this bonus three session series on Beyond Weight for Children. Today I am talking with Shalyn Yamanaka Wong. Um, from Singapore she's living she's coming to us from Singapore from the United States lived in Canada has lived in many places in the world and today we are speaking with her where she currently lives in Singapore about nutrition in schools Um, if you haven't listened to Rebecca Hernandez, um, her the first episode about children in this series, Beyond Weight, please go back and listen to that because there's a number of concepts that Shallon and I touch on in this series that um, would be much better if you'd listen to that or if you've listened to my whole five-part series on intuitive eating for children, either one of those will prime you for this conversation. Um, But today we're talking about nutrition in schools, and I thought that this was going to be kind of a short episode, and yet I believe it's the longest one to date. So um, there's just so much to talk about when it comes to schools, because we're talking about schools, we're talking about kids, we're talking about parents, we're talking about systems. There's just so much to cover when it comes to nutritional education and feeding children in schools. So I hope you enjoy it. This conversation was amazing. I just want to tell you before before I we get going though, a little bit about Shalin, because um, she is a dietitian. Who helps families turn stressful mealtimes into relaxing and enjoyable meals. She understands schools and parents' struggles with feeding children and helps them raise children with a positive relationship to food and their bodies. She, as I mentioned, currently lives in Singapore, but she works with schools and families all over the world and is working on launching her first online group program later this year. I think that you're going to find Shallon's experience working within multiple different school systems really fascinating and um, I just love some of the the big points, the big highlights that she um, brings our attention to in this episode. So enjoy. I hope you have enjoyed this series as much as I have enjoyed pulling it together. There's so much more to talk about but I really do feel like we've made a really good dent in exploring the possibility of managing and dealing with health issues beyond weight, beyond food restriction and body shame. And I feel like this is just such a beautiful way to end the series. So thanks for being with and enjoy, enjoy this episode. Hi, Shalyn, Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much for being here. For people listening, um, I know Shallon because we did the affiliate program through Ellen Satter together, and we are currently wrapping up the associate program together. So we've spent quite a bit of time together in the past couple of years. And one of the things that Shallon's been been working a lot on um, is pulling together lots of information about feeding in schools. And I know that this is something that comes up for a lot of parents in my community and parents that I work with. Um, and so I was just really excited to bring Shallon on to talk about this today. But to start, Shallon, do you want to just tell us a little bit about you and your practice and who you work with and you know how you started working with the Ellen Satter trust models?
1: Sure. Um, so I am a dietitian. Um, And I went to school in the U.S. um, and then moved to Canada. And so I worked in Canada for a bit. Um, Throughout my career, I've sort of run the gamut. I've gone from surgery to long-term care. Um, I've worked in food service. We've moved around the world twice. Um, And my last sort of job working for someone was working in international schools and food service. and in that job, I ended up working with a lot of parents and getting screamed at by a lot of parents. Um, and I had a boss that I had to, you know, meet on a regular basis. And I, I was sort of stuck because I had parents that wanted one thing on one hand and I had a boss that I had to, um, and a budget that I had to be meeting on the other. And I ended up one day in a A meeting um, with some parents for a location that we were going to be um, going into and I had a a father very proudly tell me that his children didn't know what McDonald's was and they didn't have sugar in the house and they didn't you know no juice and all these foods that his kids didn't eat Um, and then He followed that up saying, every weekend we go to birthday parties and my kids go absolutely crazy. And that conversation was sort of my eye opener. Um, I had heard of, or I had read two of uh, Ellen Satter's books when I was in graduate school. And at that time I had no plans on ever working with kids. Um, But the the models resonated with me at that point, um, even though I wasn't even thinking about kids right. <laughs> at that point in my life. Um, and I had always said, you know, when I do have kids, I'm going to be following these models because they make sense to me. I've seen the research and, you know, um, that's what I wanted to do. Um, but when I was sitting in that meeting, one um, at that point in my life, I had a little one at home um, that I was following the models with. And I just came to this sort of aha moment on what are we doing to kids? Like My whole career, I've been hearing about all these chronic disease issues and obesity and all these problems. And it sort of just dawned on me that It's because of how we're raising our kids today that, um, you know, we're teaching them basically to have chronic disease issues and weight issues. Um, So unfortunately, I think if we keep this projection going on, that is just going to keep getting worse and worse.
0: Like we're teaching them to have this really imbalanced, problematic relationship with food that forces them to struggle. Yeah, yeah.
1: With food, with their bodies, yeah. Um, you know, it, with yeah, we're not teaching them on how to have a positive relationship with food and their bodies and right. um, to be relaxed and enjoy food. Uh-huh. It's a whole set of rules on yes and no and healthy and health, unhealthy. That, that yeah, it's, basi- it's basically like
0: a, a a lifelong program on how to fight your body and fight food.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, um, with that realization, I ended up changing my career path and, um, I have sort of a private practice going on here in Singapore, um, where I work with families primarily, um, and helping families when they're having mealtime struggles, um, so that their kids can eventually have a positive relationship with food and, um, I also have been working hard and trying to get into schools because I feel that although the parents play a huge role in that feeding relationship, I think our kids still spend a fair amount of time at school. And when they're getting um, nutrition education from here in Singapore, public health starts in nursery schools, basically, um, with the public health information of this is a healthy plate and this is what you're supposed to be eating, which we studies showed kids that age don't have the capability of understanding what that, that nutrition right. hope message is. And it just sort of builds the guilt and shame cycle of, Oh, I'm not supposed to be eating this. I'm, you know, I want to eat this, but I want to eat a cookie, but Oh, Nope. It's a unhealthy food or I'm not supposed to be eating it or it's too much sugar you know, all these messages that they're getting from a very young age.
0: Yeah, it's really tricky because I, you know, things my kids will bring home that they'll talk about messages that they've gotten at school about food, often, sometimes from the actual curriculum and the programming. Most often, interestingly, it's coming from individuals within within the school, some of whom have training with food, some of whom absolutely do not. So just like lunchtime monitors, um, who are imparting their wisdom at lunch, you know, when it comes to food, some of which is okay, some of which is not very good. And so I've had lots of parents coming to me, you know, then there's also the curriculum, which is very like, control based, deficit based, as, as Ellen would say, you know, your body can't be trusted, here's how you have to control everything. Um, it's really tricky, isn't it? Because parents will come to me and say, um, how do I talk to the my teacher about this or how do I talk to, but it's tough because it's, it's a, a government um, approved or a board approved curriculum that's being offered. So it's difficult to argue with that because it has to be changed at the board level. And then the other conversations with like individual teachers, I find at our school goes quite well, you know, like if you bring the attention to the principal or to the And I know that that's not true of every school, but at our school, those individual conversations tend to go quite well. Like I would prefer if my kid was not told what to eat and in what order that 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 will be as well as they can listen to occasionally these, like I said, these lunchtime monitors get swapped out and we have no control over that. And then, you know, but it is challenging to combat the the messages in the classroom, I guess is what I'm getting at. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the conventional approach, like what is typically happening. I know maybe it's a little different in Singapore than here, but I think it's not that different. Uh, the messages that are being given in the classroom and then just talk about some of the challenges with that approach or the the issues that you see. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I think I've, I find here a lot of the messages that the schools are, are providing um, Often are parent-driven, so parents that have big concerns go to the school, make a big stink, and the schools sort of try to adjust. Um, I think that's why a lot of the programs that are going on in schools, where they've taken out certain food groups from, you know, the school cafeterias and stuff, and say, "Oh, you're not allowed to sell these type of foods. You're not allowed to sell like." I think even to the point. Some schools, um, when I grew up, we sold candy bars on a regular basis for clubs and whatnot. I think a lot of schools have had to get rid of all of those sales because of the fact that parents raised concerns over all the candy sales um, that their kids were eating. Um, So I think... You know, we have sort of the issues that the schools are trying to ensure that the parents are happy um, as well as do their job. And so they they tend to run a very fine line. Um,
0: yeah, you said you mentioned earlier, actually, and I wanted to circle back to it just for a second because you said when you were in the international school that there were sort of parents very upset with you and then a print like sort of like a principal or a head of the school that was trying to. To, you know execute one sort of plan, and then parents wanting another? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what's the um, what's the disagreement there, or what were the parents upset about?
1: I got a lot of you know, no juice in school, no flavored milks. They didn't want ice cream. They didn't want fried foods, um, and. I I had numerous conversations with parents um, on, I can serve your kids carrot sticks for lunch every day. And when they're not eating them and you scream at me that my food's horrible because your kids aren't eating lunch, you know, I have nowhere to go. Right. And um, it's sort of, what's the expectation? Parents want their kids to be eating certain types of food all the time. Yet when their kids choose not to eat those foods, then they're upset because of their kids aren't eating enough. Um, now, that's one thing I love about the models um, that, that we follow with Ellen Satter is, you know, we know the kid's intake is really erratic and sometimes they're hungry and they're going to eat a lot and sometimes they're not. Even if it's a favorite food, if they're not hungry and they're a competent eater, they're not going to eat. But parents are often so worried about their kids eating. Um, And I think a lot has to do with public health messages that they get is you're supposed to be eating a balanced plate every meal and they um, get this ingrained in their mind and they expect their kids to be doing that. Well, research shows and tells us that kids don't eat balanced meals all the time even as adults we don't eat balanced meals all the time sometimes you eat a lot of say uh, maybe carbohydrates you know Um, and sometimes you may want a salad for a meal you know it balances out but because of we get ingrained with these public health messages from young that this is what we're supposed to be eating or this is how we're supposed to be eating We end up with these parents that are struggling all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have these expectations they're pushing on their kids. And when their kids don't follow them, they're in this panic.
0: The deficit, right? Like the feeling that their kids are failing at eating as opposed to actually developing quite normally.
1: And from the work that I do with a lot of parents, I find that the parents actually have a lot of guilt and shame over that as well. When their kids aren't eating well, and eating the way they expect them to, parents often feel that I'm failing my child somehow,
0: right? Like or, they've done something wrong, exactly. Which I again, haven't taught
1: my child right. Yeah.
0: Know. Which again, it's like pathologizing really normal development in a child. Yeah. So okay. So the big concerns for parents, which I would say I agree with hundred percent, is a kids eating enough. Like, are they eating at school? And then be this idea of quality of food, and I I would say that I hear that more in in the conversations here in yeah. Canada, which it's more like, you know, but kids can't focus or they can't um, they're not going to uh, behave as well. So so an example would be twice a year, two times a year, they did a fundraiser at our kids' school, and it's literally like a loony milkshake and all the money goes to the school. And so it was a very simple fundraiser, but, and, and, you know, people are reasonable, but they were upset about it. You know, it's like, it's way too much sugar. It's, and, and it was funny cause it was this balance of like, it's way too much sugar, but then also being upset that the kids weren't drinking it cause the kids were actually regulating themselves and only drinking a certain amount of it and then leaving the rest cause their bodies clearly didn't want it. Um, but just kind of that, you know, they're not drinking them. And also it's way too much sugar. And um, so I'm just wondering how you manage those kinds of concerns, like those, those, like, it's too much sugar, kids don't do well with sugar, they can't regulate themselves, like how, because that is a huge concern for a lot of parents, right?
1: Right. I mean, parents always have these, these concerns, and it, it's sort of... If you don't trust your child can balance and self-regulate, then you're going to drive yourself crazy all the time because of the fact that it's oh, you shouldn't be eating that or you know, and then there's the waste issue. Yeah. Right. I don't want you to eat a lot of it, but now we're we're wasting food because you're not eating it all, type thing. Right. Um. So there's so many different things that are, they conf, they conflict each other, but then, you know, I think parents are having this internal struggle themselves on, oh, you know, I enjoy something, but then, oh, we shouldn't be eating it because it's not good for us. Or the line that came out, um, I can't even, probably in the 90s, early 2000s was, oh, everything in moderation was the big line in the U.S. And people say, oh, well, I can eat it in moderation. But
0: but they have no idea what moderation means or how to achieve that, right? Exactly. Right.
1: Um, and then there's still the guilt, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that, right? That, that comes mm-hmm. out after they've eaten in moderation. And so it's trying to often try, deal with the parents' expectations and trying to get the parents to realize their expectations, right? Um, of what's going to happen at school and what's going to be happening at home. Mm -hmm. right um and then sort of their expectations of what school can provide so a lot of schools have gone to sort of the extreme where teachers are sort of like police enforcers right on i've seen notes um people posted in social media on you know my child got this letter home saying that They had these foods in their lunch, which were unacceptable and shouldn't be served at school. Um, And it's difficult on the teachers as well. Um, However, teachers often are parents themselves and they have their own issues going on. So, you know, it's just like a big old
0: mess of like of. Inconsistent it, it, nutritional, which I think is true of our of our world at the moment, is that there's so much nutritional information. This is really, to me, like when I'm hearing you say this, it sounds like what you're what you're finding is unrealistic expectations, many of which conflict with each other, um, and then also this realization that there's so much conflicting nutritional information that exists in the world that like when we're focused on the what of feeding, it's impossible for everyone to agree. So the, the curriculum says one thing, the principal has another feeling cause she's just a human or he's just a human. And the health teacher has a different feeling cause they're also parents and humans with their own struggles with food and the lunch monitors. And, and then all the kids are getting just this overload of, and then they have their own parents' expectations and philosophies around food. And so they're just getting overloaded with expectations and nutritional messaging, much of which is conflicting.
1: Yes, for sure.
0: All of which is potentially, well, well, definitely way more damaging than the sugar that they might be consuming.
1: (laughs) Yes. And then with regards to schools often, schools, they have sort of an interesting view on eating it's something that they have to provide because kids are at school during a meal time yet it's sort of often an afterthought on okay well we need to provide lunch how do we fit it in
0: oh so interesting i love that you're bringing this up yeah
1: don't really think about what works best for the kids so there's a lot of research on you know Kids who are hungry from food insecure houses, they're, um, they're not able to concentrate in class and what, whatnot, right? Of course, when you're hungry, it is difficult to concentrate. Um, but they don't really think about timing. So if you look at a lot of school schedules, they just sort of fit in breaks and lunch wherever it fits the curriculum. Right. So and then they they wonder, well, the kids don't eat very well or parents panic because especially this year um, for us here, we didn't have lunch service for a good chunk. Well, for the past few months. So we had to send in lunch. And because of the kids mm-hmm. are eating in their classrooms because they didn't want them to be grouping in the cafeterias. Because of COVID, um, right? Because of COVID, they basically were bringing home most of their trash because they don't want all the trash in the classrooms because of pests and whatnot. So you got to see exactly how much or how little your child was eating. And so a lot of parents were panicking on that. One, because of they were working so hard to actually pack lunches um, because they had no other option. But then often when meals were coming home, they're like, well, why isn't my child eating? So is it the fact that they're not getting enough time to eat lunch, which is a very common occurrence in schools where they give kids 20 minutes to eat. Um, And studies show, I believe it's sit down time of at least 30 minutes um, should be, is ideal for, for most kids intakes in elementary schools. But they don't think of the length of time that they give the kids to eat. And then they don't think of The timing between eating occurrences or eating opportunities. So sometimes I've seen schedules where kids have, like, maybe they'll go three, four hours in the morning between when they would probably be eating breakfast and a first break, just because they had all their classes back to back. And then they'll have maybe an hour between that break and lunch. So they're starving at the first break, eating a fair amount, and then by the time they hit lunch an hour later, they're not really hungry yet. So they don't really eat that. And then the parents are often complaining that the kids are starving by the time they get home at the end of the day, because it's been a good chunk of time again by the time um, between lunch and the end of the day. But in reality, the kids aren't eating lunch because they weren't hungry at lunchtime. So it's that's a big struggle that i often have with schools is it's always about the curriculum and fitting in the classes and the academics and they're not thinking about the welfare of the right. kids right it's
0: like food is an food is an afterthought like you said that they're cramming in when really And we'll get to this because we'll start in a minute. I want to talk about like what the way forward is, like what the ideal way to teach about food is that eating would be part of the curriculum, right? Like how to eat would be part of a really important part of the curriculum. And I agree with you, like um, we find the same thing that here in public school, very short periods of time, it's often Quite chaotic, it's either very chaotic throughout the eating period, so for for children who are distractible, that twenty minutes is five minutes it's three minutes mm-hmm. sometimes um, and or they're using distraction techniques to manage the kids and it, it, it's a it's a product of also funding like there's one lunch monitor for three classrooms, and they're kind of floating between them. I think things are a bit different this year because of COVID, but that's traditionally what it's been like. So there's not an adult present often in the room for the majority of the lunch, they're floating between rooms. And so they're using things like YouTube and movies and TV yes. or, or it's a little bit of chaos. You know, I mean, one of my favorite, I love kids. I really love kids. And I spend a lot of time volunteering at the kids' school. And one time I went in at lunch and my daughter's friend, it was like, I mean, he's so funny. He's like, it's like the purge in here. Like <laughs> like that movie. <laughs> and I just laugh so hard because it's so true. It's like just chaos, you know? And so not only is it not prioritized, there's not really an adult present. Often the TV is babysitting them. And so, you know, I have one kid in particular who also talks nonstop. So between the talking and the show and the the chaos. I mean, she, she, she's getting better, but her first couple of years of school, the food was just coming home. And she'd say, I just, I, I ran out of time, right? <laughs> there was no time, you know, like okay. it's just all over. So I love that you bring that up. Cause it was something, you know, when I was thinking about this conversation with you and I kind of forgot about it, but just that idea that food is such an like we we spend so much time worrying and feeling guilt and shame and panic about the foods again the what our children are consuming right. and like little to no time thinking about the relationship with food and how they're eating and the environment that they're eating in um, and then one other thing before we just dig into sort of you know, the ideal, if, if there was an ideal way to teach kids or to be feeding kids in school, how we would do it. Um, but the one other thing that you kind of touched on that I wanted to bring up was just this idea that when we really focus on the what, and again, the conflicting messaging, I, I once had a, a lun- I think it was a lunch monitor, I don't believe it was a teacher, tell one of my girls that her granola bar wasn't healthy enough to be eating. And it was like, you know, it was like an organic I mean, not that I think this even matters, but it was like an organic oat, low sugar granola bar. Like, I just, I feel like that, that monitor must have been on some kind of paleo keto (laughs) grains are not good for you kick, which I was just like, this is, I just sort of said like, you don't have to listen to this messaging. But, um, but just also how challenging and how much pressure that is for a, um, um, here in Canada anyway, immigrant families who have very different ideas about the what's of eating, like what foods they serve their kids. Like lots of kids are just, you know, rice and, and meat and, and hot dogs and bread. And like, this is so immigrant families, and then also lower income families where the choices are just what they're, they're sending their kids. Um, with what they know and and what they have access to and how hard that is for kids who are coming from different backgrounds when this messaging is already so conflicting and much of it really like dismisses their own experience or their own food their own cultural food knowing or accessibility right yeah yeah
1: i mean i growing up in california um I grew up in a very um, a primarily white and Hispanic community. So I was uh, I was in the minority as an Asian. Right. Um, and I mean, I remember taking rice to school and um, like um, rice balls to school for lunch. And, you know, kids would be like, what are you eating? You know, it's not a typical lunch for uh American. An,
0: an 80s American. Um, I think now Asian 80s, food yeah. is like very, you know, it's, sushi is My kids were rice balls yesterday. <laughs> but in the 80s, <laughs> not so much, yes. right?
1: Exactly. And when I was growing up, it, it wasn't, you know, I, I had some unique things that came in my lunch sometimes. And um we are in a a more multicultural world now. Um, But I think there is a lot of talk about food, and um, depending on the messaging that a child gets from home, kids are often saying, oh, you know, there's too much sugar in that, or, um, you know, that's unhealthy, why are you eating that? And I've heard this from kids, you know, as young as five or younger sometimes. Um, And here in the... uh, like the nursery, they call them kindergartens. I often see parents are so worried about intake that the teachers are running around with spoons trying to like spoon feed kids, even once they're beyond the sort of toddler age um, into, you know, three, four, even some five year olds, they're trying to coax to eat more. Uh, so it, it's very much. For those teachers, it's very parent driven because the parents are so worried about their kids aren't eating enough that they the teachers want to be able to tell their um the parents when they come pick up their kid, Oh, your child ate well today.
0: Um, they ate like a marker, right? right? Yeah, that's interesting because again, I mean, maybe maybe I'm forgetting because my kids are older now. I think that that intake was. When kids were young, it was a big deal, but I feel like it's interesting to hear that difference. That intake in Singapore is like quite a big concern for parents because I feel like quality and like food choices are a bigger concern or a bigger topic of conversation here.
1: I think a lot to me um, comes down to s- sort of the food security and how long it's been there for um a a community so if you're talking no matter where you are if you have a family that's been food insecure and it hasn't been if it's one generation back right if when there's food insecurity there's always worry about how much you're eating yes Yes. here in Singapore the country is quite young, um, and so it wasn't that long ago that they had food insecurity um, right. here, so that it's sort of very much culturally um, present that the grandparents that are, tend to be very involved in the grandchildren's lives have that sort of worry in the back of their mind still.
0: Yeah, and you have and so much so, compassion for that when you understand where it's coming from right yes yeah for sure like it makes sense that this is this is like a post-traumatic you know it's a it's it's a it's a traumatic stress and anxiety thing Mm -hmm. right and it's not something that people are going to get over right away Right. right right and i think it's like um i always try to say this i feel like it's an understanding between us but i always just like to say in all of these kid episodes as well that like anyone who's working with kids and food, um, we know that the intention is always very, very, very good. You know? And I think like so much of these conversations around um, feeding kids and the issues that we see, it's about understanding that there's like, cultural and systemic issues with our beliefs about food and bodies that need to change and, Mm -hmm. you know, never blaming the individuals because we recognize that parents, the ones who are worried about sugar, the ones who are worried about their kids getting enough to eat, the ones who are, you know, worried about grains, everybody's coming at it from a place of like wanting their children to grow and thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we know that as practitioners as well. Right. And so, um, Yeah. So with that in mind, I'm wondering, do you want to just talk a little bit about like, if this, if, if Shalom just got to create like the ideal (laughs) scenario in a school, how, like, how do you see food education, nutritional education and eating and feeding happening in schools?
1: In my ideal school situation, um, it very much has to come from the top and it has to be embedded in the school culture. Um, so often when I talk to schools, I talk about, you know, you need to come up with uh, eating and feeding philosophy for your school. And in that eating and feeding philosophy, it has to be based on positive eating behaviors, right? Having that positive association with food and that good relationship with food And having trust in the the students that they know how to self regulate. Um, So I think, sort of, that overarching philosophy needs to be there. Um, And ideally, you teach all the teachers and staff that are involved in feeding and eating, um, and you teach the parents because the parents play a huge role. If you're restricting your child at home, even if you send them to a school that has this wonderful, amazing philosophy, your, your child's going to be confused because it's like, okay, at school, I can do this, but at home, it's very different, right? Or if you believe that your child has to clean their plate at home and then at school, it's okay. Well, if you're full, you can stop eating, right? It, they don't go hand in hand. So well, they're it's very also primed.
0: Much, they're also primed to um, start behaving in what looks like a negative way when there's more permission, right? right. If they're yeah. restricted at home, right?
1: Yeah. So I mean, if if you have all, you know the restriction or the force feeding at home, they're learning those traits, and it's very difficult for them, even when they're in a more relaxed environment often, to, get in touch with those, their hunger and fullness cues and whatnot, right? It's not something you can turn on and off by going on on a school bus every day. Um, so it, it's very much, I think, a community event that, that needs to be happening. And the philosophy needs to extend from the school to the parents and from the parents back to the school, um, you know, looking at timing to ensure that the kids are getting opportunities to eat every two to three hours, um, giving your, the children the choice as to how much they need to be eating. So, um, I mean, personally, I always talk to my, my um, son's teachers every year because the school usually says, please send a morning snack, a labeled morning snack, lunch, an afternoon snack. And I said, you know, I, we don't follow that philosophy in our family. I will send a bag of food with him every morning and please allow him to eat as much or as little as he wants at each opportunity.
0: Yeah. Our school does a really good job mm-hmm. of this. And quite frequently, I think because of what you alluded to earlier, which was this like very long gap in the morning. Um, often my kids will report eating most of that bag of food at the first snack
1: mm-hmm.
0: when they, when they have that opportunity yeah. to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I had a conversation with my son's teacher last year and she was, she panicked when I told her that, um, at the beginning of the school year, she's like, what happens if he eats everything at the beginning of, you know, at the first snack? I was like, well, at the time we still had the cafeteria. I said, he has money on his, his card. If he eats all this food, then and he needs lunch and he wants to eat by lunch, you know, he can purchase lunch um, if he needs it, but typically there's enough food that he'll be able to balance his, his eating for the day. He well, And needs- I and, and it has
0: happened before where my kids are going through a growth spurt or something like that. And I will get a note home from the teacher, which I totally appreciate, which is like your kids need more food because they do go through periods as we yeah. know with kids where they're eating not that much. And so they're bringing a lot of food home. And so I cut back on the amount of food that I'm sending because their yes. appetite seems to be low. And it seems like the moment I catch on that they're not that hungry, you know, within two weeks, they hit a growth spurt or something, and I need to send double the amount of food. But I totally appreciate appreciate that. And then we also have, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but we also have snack bins. So like you know, heaven forbid, like, you know, the kids eat all the food early in the morning. Most of the time, I will say that my kids seem then, if they eat the majority of food in the morning and they have a couple little things left, they seem to be fine with that for the rest of the day. They even sometimes will still bring something home. Um, Or there's always these snack bins. But I think it's, yeah, such a key part of this ideal world of feeding where children are allowed to eat as much as they need to at the, you know, at the times of the day when they're the hungriest. Yeah. Right.
1: right. And and it's funny, um, this year at the beginning of school, um, the teacher kept sending notes to, like she does a, a blanket note to all the parents saying, there's a number of kids that are really hungry for, for pe- afternoon snack, please send more food for afternoon snack. And I was like, that's sort of interesting. And then I looked at their schedule, and they have lunch at eleven thirty. And so by two forty-five, they're all starving because <laughs> it's,
0: yeah, it's been, been a long. good
1: chunk of time. Yeah. Um, and so it was like, oh, that's what's going on, right? <laughs> um, it, it makes sense to me, but um, yeah. you know, often schools aren't looking at that, and parents right. are just like, I don't understand. Why are they so hungry at this time? And right. it's You know, it's sort of the the timing again. It it hasn't been laid out sort of in regular chunks of time for them. It's like everything's sort of jammed before noon for them, and then they have to wait until the end of the day. Um, So, I mean, sort of ideally, we need regular eating intervals throughout the day for kids to have that opportunity so that they're not or they they arrive at meals or snacks hungry and they can eat until they're full and satisfied and then you know they're going to be able to concentrate better and be more attentive in class um so that's a big component. The other component I would say is sort of being relaxed about sort of what the the food choices are. And I know there's a lot going on about different types of food now in the nutrition world. You know, if it needs to be organic and pesticides and, you know, all the- Sugar, fat GMOs, health and grains, sugar. Fat. And, yes, <laughs> exactly. There, yeah. Exactly, there's so much yeah. out there right now. Um, I tend to work with my parents more on what are you comfortable serving your child? Um, because what one parent's comfortable with, another parent may not be. Um, and there's just so much out there right now to, to make your choices on. Um, with it's what, it's, I
0: just, sorry to interrupt you. It's one of my favorite things about the SATR models though, is that it makes so much room mm-hmm. for the comfort level of the parent, for the yes. understanding of the parent, for the foods that feel culturally appropriate, for different socioeconomic backgrounds. It just makes space for all of that. And it says you can raise a competent eater no matter what. Yes. It's just, it yes. like gives me goosebumps. Yeah.
1: Yes, um, it is one of the, the beauties of the model. Um, and often when I'm working with parents, I'll be like, I'm not gonna give you a, like a, a meal um, A meal plan. And they're like, what do you mean? You're a dietitian? Why aren't you going to give me a meal plan? And I was like, because we're going to be working more on your feeding and eating behaviors. Um, and you need to be comfortable with the food that you put on your table. If you're not comfortable with the food that's, as if you, the parent, are not comfortable with the food that's going on the table, you're not going to be able to relax and enjoy the meal
0: mm-hmm.
1: because you're going to be worried about this or that, or, you know, the type of food or whatever on, on, um, the table. So, um, I mean, I think the big thing with nutrition is providing a variety of foods on a regular basis. Um, my ideal would be for kids. Maybe you go through a line in a cafeteria and you choose your, your main, whatever that is, if you're buying lunch, right. So you choose the main, and then maybe there's this bar of fruits and vegetables that you walk down and you choose whatever fruits and vegetables you want to put on your plate, and then you go sit down. Mm. To me, that would be the ideal food service yeah. situation set up for a school, just because um, you know schools in general tend to be on a, you must have X number of servings of carbohydrate X amount of protein, you know, a serving of fruit and a vegetable on every plate type um, models. And the amount of fruits and vegetables that I see get thrown in garbage is very high. Uh, because if a child's feeling like they're getting forced to eat certain foods, especially if they're not really big fans of them, they're not going to eat it, especially in a school setting when they don't have a parent this like standing over them, um, forcing them to eat a bite or or whatever, um, which we know doesn't work uh, in the long run anyways. However, uh, schools tend to be in this you must eat uh, model. I understand in the U.S., and I'm guessing maybe in Canada, um, governments run the school lunch programs I don't know does canada have a school lunch program um
0: we have so there's there's definitely guidelines like like food and nutrition guidelines that i that are based on the canada's food guide i believe i don't know how um up to date it is though if i'm honest because one of the interesting things about canada's food guide is they're finally starting to at least a little bit ease up on portions and um specific foods and mentioning more about like the relationship with food so i don't it doesn't seem to me like that has been incorporated in the nutritional education anyway. Um, As far as like lunch programs go, it really, that seems to really just depend on the individual school.
1: Got it, okay. So yeah, I know in the US, there's a very strong government-run school lunch program. So the school lunch program, if you get the government funding for that, you have very specific guidelines of servings that you need to be providing on a plate. Um, so it's in order to get children to want to be trying new foods and to be actually consuming these foods, um, the, by empowering them, by taking what food they want and don't like they want for a meal, um, increases their likelihood that they're going to actually eat that food. Right. So. I mean, in my ideal little school, that's what the sort of setup you'd have for the the lunch line um, to try to improve intake.
0: That's um, one of the best eating scenarios that I've seen with kids. Uh, My children attended a Waldorf school, so it's based on the Rudolf Steiner philosophy. And eating was very important. Like meal and snack times were very important at the school, highly prioritized. And it was viewed as within the the SATR model as a time, not only for micronutrients and macronutrients, but for nourishing relationships and um, manners and socialization. And so the kids were actually... Um, snacks and lunches, they were sat at a table, even like four, I'm talking three and four years old at tables with glass, like they were using glassware, they were learning to use proper cups. I mean they were sturdy little kid ones, but still they were um every day was the was a grain, which um, you know, felt very like child appropriate and as the as the main. So it would be like pasta with cheese or rice with soy sauce and butter or oatmeal or a soup that the kids had helped make and then there would be you know platters of a fruit and a vegetable and the kids could sort of choose and eat as much as they needed to and it just sounds so it's it just as you were talking about your ideal world i'm like and they did within that community and i know it's a private community but just the way you're describing, they did spend time talking to parents about how they fed the kids. And um, you know, it was a little bit definitely within that model. There was a little bit of like hyper focus on what, for sure, like they weren't they weren't giving, you know they weren't, you know, giving access to to, you know, quote unquote, junk foods or like alternative foods um in any way. But other than that, They definitely were doing this, like creating the space, a really predictable, ideal schedule for eating for kids, giving them lots of time. The adults sat and ate with the kids. And they actually built in a period of time, which the kill, the, the children threw it, there was like a song and then they called it golden silence for a little bit, which would allow the children to focus on their eating. And then when that was over, they were allowed to chit chat and talk and, you know, and the kids ate exceptionally well. They still talk about it. They still talk about oh, the rice and the pasta. And, and like you guys, it was like rice with soy sauce or like pasta with butter and cheese. Like this was not, you know, but they, I think that they remember it because it was such a, because of the how, the way that they were eating, there would often be like a little candle on the table and they had little cloth napkins. And, you know, it was just so idyllic. And I know that that um, seems probably highly unattainable in the public school system. And yet I think in some countries, I think countries like France, they do a little bit more of this. And Um, It's just, I think, if it were a highly valued piece of education, like, again, I think it just shows this, this fraught relationship that we have with eating, that we're so worried about the kinds of food and how much our kids are eating. And, you know, and at the same time, it would seem ridiculous to put any kind of emphasis on teaching kids how to eat, or like, investing in their relationship with food in terms of money and time. I think it's just an interesting rub. But anyway, it was beautiful and it sounds very much like your ideal school.
1: <laughs> yes. um, I think the, there's a town in Italy called Reggio Emilia and there's a philosophy of education called Reggio Emilia based on this town. Um, and they also have a very similar view. You know, the kids are, they're able to handle things that a lot of countries don't believe kids can handle, like glassware um, and proper plates and stuff like that. You know, most schools that kids are eating off plastic because, you know, they don't believe that the kids can handle the, the glassware and whatnot. And it's it's the philosophy, right? Um, and there are places out there that do have the, the philosophy. Um, unfortunately, it's still in the minority, but it does exist. Um, well, and, and as it, you
0: said, it, it takes time and it takes this community commitment to teaching kids that rhythm and routine of how you sit down. Everybody has to be doing it the yes. same in yes. order for it to become something that the children respect and and stick with right Right, right. it takes time and
1: i mean i love the if teachers do sit down and eat with the kids because we've seen the research on the importance of caregivers whatever caregivers eat kids tend to follow right and um so in schools if your caregivers or your teachers aren't sitting down and eating with your kids the same foods that everyone else is eating, then, you know, and everyone's eating sort of different foods, you don't have that same sense of community, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There are a number of schools, I think, and that I've seen that um, often lunch is included as part of tuition and especially private schools. And I love that philosophy. Um, because it means that everyone has access to the same foods and that everyone's sort of eating the same foods. Um, and often I'll, I'll hear parents um, in the nursery level here in Singapore, often the schools make the food and everyone eats it. It's part of your, your tuition that you pay. And parents all the time tell me, oh, my child eats so well at school but then they don't eat at home. Like why? Like what's going on? And I think there is sort of it's, they tend to call it peer pressure, but it's the benefit of having peers eating the same food, your caregivers eating the same food with you, um, that kids are sort of learning. Um, I mean, I've had numerous parents say, Oh, you know, my kids don't eat vegetables. And then I'll talk to the parents out. Oh, so what type of vegetables do you like? I don't eat vegetables. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, how does your child learn to eat vegetables if they never see anyone eating vegetables?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they model after their caregivers. Yeah.
0: We um, experienced that too, that like um, positive peer pressure of when you're eating, when they would eat in this group at, at the school um, that they would eat a lot. And then uh, we just started to come to learn that like on the days where they were there, they wouldn't really eat a lot of dinner. And that was also part of the beautiful self-regulation that children engage in where like, if they, had two solid snacks and a huge lunch at school, not every day, but many of those days they'd, they'd met their caloric needs and they were kind of good. And we would either need to push dinner back to when they were actually going to be hungry or they would not eat very much. And then we would institute like a, a an evening snack as part of the routine so that they could have a piece of fruit or a yogurt or something to, to tide them over until morning. But understanding that that's not a bad thing, that that's like a really that's fine. That's kids self-regulating, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're full and they're done and they don't need any more food, you know, or they need very little. So, um, I know that I've talked about this a bit before in the podcast, but I feel like it would be great to review again because there is so much, I think, skepticism when it comes to this idea that like we can trust our kids that they aren't in a continual deficit and continue that they won't, you know, continually just sugar seek if sugar is available. Um, so can you just recap, you know, it, you, you've laid out this ideal school, this magical school that could potentially exist and how we would feed kids and, and teach them about food, which would really just be creating really nice spaces for them to eat and learn to eat, you know? Um, but what are the benefits from the research that we know that come out of focusing on the how of feeding and the, the, you know, from a trust perspective, what do we know is going to happen for these kids based on the research right now?
1: I mean, I think the big ones for the how is tends to be more on the restrictions and whatnot, right? Um, all the research is showing that when a child is restricted, they tend to eat more when they get access to that food. Um, and there's a fear model often based (laughs) with parents on, they're so afraid of what their child's going to do. And it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that ends up happening, right? Um, so there's meaning that. like
0: they're scared of sugar so they don't give their kids sugar and then the moment the kids are around sugar they overeat sugar and then that becomes proof that their kid can't regulate around sugar so they restrict it even more and the cycle continues exactly. until I work with them as adults <laughs> and I have to convince them that they're not sugar addicts that this was this is a natural reaction to continual shame and blame and sugar restriction. Yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um and I mean the same happens with regards to like vegetables, right? So parents have this often obsession with my child has to eat vegetables. And so they are on top of their child. To, oh, you need to take one bite, you need to clean your plate, or you're not leaving the table. Scenarios that end up happening with vegetables. Or there's a ton of parents out there. Um that try to hide vegetables um, in their children's meals because of the fact that they're trying to get their kids to eat more vegetables. Um, That as well, and all the research, it shows it backfires. Um, They've done studies with um, college-age kids to see what their eating behaviors are. Um, And kids that have... um, been forced to eat certain foods, typically vegetables. Um, As children, often even at at college age, don't tend to eat those vegetables because of that a negative association that they have. Um, They just have no desire to eat whatever vegetables that they had been forced to eat when they were younger. Um, The other thing that happens with vegetables, um, I mean, there's a potential trust issue that a lot of kids have. if parents are hiding it when they realize that they're eating something that they didn't think that they were eating. Um, and then you have the kids that sh- refuse to eat the vegetables because of the fact that they're unsure of what's in the food or they un- they just don't want to eat anything because of they have that loss of trust. Um, so that is also a, a problem with, with um, the vegetables. Um, trying to think if there's any other research that is sort of popping um, to the top of my head.
0: Yeah. I um, don't know. Like just, I think, I think for me, um, the biggest thing, like if I'm just trying to think of what I think people most need to hear is that we know that when we focus on the how of eating, that children do self-regulate and that mm-hmm. they, they do seek naturally seek variety and meet their nutritional needs. And that the biggest thing I think for me anyway, as a parent, cause I engaged in all of that stuff, even though I was aware of Ellen's model, I wasn't fully, impl- I was implementing it, but not fully implementing it when my girls were very young. And so I definitely engaged in like hiding vegetables and all these things. But I think that, um, the biggest thing is that I am trying to preserve their relationship with food in their body so that there are really good long-term effects and understanding that sometimes when we go after these short-term like quick fixes of how to get vegetables into kids or like just cutting out all the sugar or cutting it, we really stunt their development and their ability to like learn how to feed themselves naturally and and kind of perfectly and um, develop that competence that Ellen is so big on. And competence means that they can be in the presence of sugary food and not go bonkers for it, yes, that they can eat it sure. or not eat it. They can eat a lot of it and then they regulate their intake later in the day or later in the week or whatever. So um, yeah, I guess that the biggest thing is that I think there's a lot of disbelief that kids will, because we operate in a controlled deficit model, there's just the belief that if we just focus on the how of eating, they're just going to be in a deficit all the time. And the opposite is actually true. Like they end up better nourished. Their weight is better regulated. Their appetite is better regulated. Um, yeah. yeah. I think for okay. me, that's like, as a parent, that's what I need to hear. And I think that's probably... What listeners need to hear because I think it sounds really scary for a lot of people to consider exposing kids to sugar oh. and self-regulating intake and you know all yep. of those things yeah
1: along those lines I was also reminded lately um having kids is you always get these reminders just when you need them yeah um restriction is different for everyone and how a child can feel, you may think you're not restricting. Right. Doesn't mean that your child doesn't feel that way. So um, my my son reminded me of this the other day. Um, We hadn't baked cookies in a really long time. And I just realized that the other day. And I was like, oh, you know, it's been a while since we've had some cookies. I'll make some cookies. And I put the cookies out and he's always been pretty good. If it, it, there are days that he eats a lot and there, there have been times that he took one bite of cookie and was like, I'm done. Yeah. Right. But he, every time I put the cookies out, he wanted to take the whole plate and he didn't want to share with anyone. And I, I realized it had been so long since we had cookies that he had sort of this restrictive feeling to it that he'd been restricted like it's it. going to be
0: too long till we have cookies again i gotta get him exactly. all exactly yeah
1: <laughs> so you know we went through the whole batch of cookies and i ended up making another batch of cookies of um of a different type because i was trying out some recipes and i let him have that and so that he's sort of feeling more confident and comfortable with cookies again yeah. Um, and so it's, it's sort of that reminder that, you know, we may sometimes feel that we're not being restrictive, but that doesn't necessarily mean our child doesn't feel that way. And yeah. even if you have, if you have multiple kids, one child may end up feeling restricted on a certain food or the other child's perfectly fine with it.
0: That's right. so interesting. I it love is. that message that like, cause I do the same with adults, which is that if you're feeling that kind of like a compulsive um, preoccupied feeling, it's not proof that you can't regulate yourself. It's not proof that there's something broken with your appetite or your desire for, for sugar or that food. It's, it's evidence of restriction on some level. And so for a parent, that's such an interesting, um, message to be like, it's not proof that your kid is broken. It's proof that you need to create more opportunities for them to develop competence with that food. Right. Right. Right.
1: And it's not even that they're not competent with that food. It's just a matter of at that moment, they're feeling that restriction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, they may be a competent eater.
0: It's right. just a matter
1: of they're going, oh my gosh, I haven't seen cookies in so long. Ah, so excited. I need to eat them.
0: Right. 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 And oh, that's a good, that's a good How do we get
1: that the more yeah. relaxed around that again? Yeah. Um, Because of the fact that it's, it's this, we've made it that novelty item.
0: Yeah. Got it. Okay. So I got to, let's wrap this up because I know you've really given me a lot of your time. Um, any last thoughts about like the trust model or feeding in schools or just like any kind of overarching message that you want to leave listeners and parents with?
1: I think for me, um it would be, I don't know, forever done learning, even if, I mean, we, we work with the models all the time. We're working with families all the time with the models. Um, and as a person, I, I think there's always room for growth. And even though we're confident in it, you get these reminders every once in a while, right? And so it's, to just stay curious and to, um, to allow yourself that opportunity to have those realizations.
0: Love it. Yeah. I love that. I love it. Cause it's true. I find nuances to this work all the time, you know? So, um, that's a great, that's a great last thought. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for being on the show. That was a big episode. I am so interested to hear your thoughts. I know that when it comes to feeding kids and schools, there are a ton of opinions. And so I'm incredibly interested to hear how you guys felt about that episode, what you got out of it, what challenged you in that episode. And you can always email me, hello at foodfreedombodylove.com to let me know. I'm also going to include some links in the show notes on ways to find Shallon. Uh, She's an incredible resource when it comes to families and feeding, and particularly when it comes to feeding in schools. So I just wanna make sure that you have the contact information for her so you can get in touch. Um, We are deep in the holiday season, about to move into 2021 and I just want to say, um, I'm going to do a wrap up episode next week and talk a little bit more about the programs that I'm going to be offering in 2021. Um, but there's just a few more weeks of 2020 pricing left. Um, I've mentioned in episodes before that, um, things are changing a little bit here at food, freedom, body, love method. I have some new programs that are going to come out um, I'm up-leveling and upgrading my current programming. And for anyone who wants to get in on the 2020 pricing, you have a couple of weeks. So you can email me hello at foodfreedombodylove.com if you have been thinking about doing one-on-work to heal up your relationship with food, whether you have a health condition or you're just struggling with food in your body image, reach out to me. Let's set up a call, let's get it going, let's start 2021 correctly. Okay that's it thank you thank you for tuning in thank you for being part of this series just thank you thank you for everything um i love doing this podcast i love connecting with all of you in this way it's a real joy and i love being able to share my work and the work of others through podcasting and it's all possible because you guys tune in so please last request rate review and share the show as often as you possibly can um so that I can bring you the next series I don't know what it's going to be but it will be in the new year um and just thank you thank you for being here I appreciate you very very much